Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. in a series focused on the medical device industry. Today's podcast, Best Practices and Recommendations for Early to Mid-Stage Medical Device Companies to Implement Design Controls. We're going to cover a bunch of interesting topics, when and how to think about design controls, how your approach today may limit future opportunity and value in your intellectual property, and what to do when the game changes. My name is Bill Loss. I've spent the last 20 years in the entrepreneurial world, most notably with two successful software startups that led to acquisitions by larger players in the respective markets. I'm a current investor and advisor in the tech space, including the medical device industry. Thanks for listening in. Really excited to kick off today's podcast. I'm joined today by two industry veterans in the medical device community. First, we've got Mike Drews. He's president of Vascular Science, Sciences and Education Training and Consulting Firm servicing the medical device, pharmaceutical, and biotechnology industries. Mike holds a Ph.D. in biomedical engineering, among other degrees, from Iowa State University. Mike is an internationally recognized expert and featured keynote speaker on cutting-edge medical technologies and regulatory affairs. Mike is also currently an adjunct professor of medicine, biomedical engineering, and biotechnology at several universities and medical schools. We're also joined by John Spear. John is co-founder and resident guru at Greenlight.Guru. Greenlight offers an innovative approach to EQMS through delivering a solution exclusively built for the medical device community, helping med device companies get their products to market faster with less risk and better patient outcomes. John is also co-founder and president of Creo Quality, a consultancy formed in 2006 to help support med device and life sciences startups with product development, project management, and broader operational needs. John comes at us here with more than 16 years of experience in the med device field. John has become known as an expert in FDA design controls and regulatory submissions such as 510K and CE technical files. John also recently authored and published The Ultimate Guide to Design Controls, which has been creating some very interesting buzz in this space. Mike and John, thanks for spending some time with us today. How are you guys Thank doing? you, Bill. It's a pleasure thanks, Bill. to be with you. Glad to have you both here. We're uh, in the spirit of kind of this fast-paced uh, life that everybody lives into. like to kind of jump right in. Mike, I want to throw a question over to you, kind of a simple one. When should design controls begin? Well, that's a great question, Bill, and thanks again to you and John and Greenlight for the opportunity to participate in this podcast discussion today. So when design control should begin is uh, is an interesting question because, like virtually all questions in regulatory affairs, the shortest and most succinct answer is it depends. And really it can uh, be thought of in a couple of different ways, from a mechanical perspective or from a philosophical perspective. So first, from a mechanical perspective, a strict read of the regulation uh, says that the design controls are supposed to kick in upon project initiation. Now, one can define the word initiation in many different ways. 
for example, um, does that mean when you first come up with the idea for the medical device early in R&D? That's typically not when um, most people start to think about design controls in a mechanistic perspective. But on the other hand, from a philosophical perspective, um, when you think of what design controls are really supposed to, to do, um, it's really design controls as a synonym in my mind for what I call prudent engineering. Uh, and that is stuff that we really should be doing anyway, um, and the regulation reminds us that uh, of what we should do, perhaps so that we don't forget something. So, John, as far as uh, Mike just shared, you know, you kind of think about the art versus the science of a lot we do mm -hmm. in business. What's your take on kind of this concept of project initiation? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, having been in and worked on a number of, of projects throughout my career, I mean, that. I've seen a lot of different approaches, and you know, Mike is exactly right. It, it does depend, but I think from a from a, a practical point of view, I think there's this this fear about uh, when I start design controls. That if I start it too soon, that somehow or another, that it hampers my ability uh, to to make progress, or that I'm suddenly now uh, under some extreme scrutiny from FDA or other regulatory bodies. And I think that there's that fear has has caused a lot of debate and a lot of discussion on, on when design controls begin. I mean, to me, the way projects work, they're not linear. We don't go from one step to the next step to the next step in a straight line. That, that seldom, if, if ever, happens. So my vote would be, you know, initiation and project initiation. You know, once you have a concept or an idea or some sort of user needs or some idea of what you're going to try to solve from a medical device perspective, to me, there's really no harm in starting design control at that point in time. I guess from a layman's perspective, you guys obviously bring a, a lot more clarity to this to this subject. When we think about how design controls are perceived, you know, you kind of think necessity for filing and audit readiness were really more value add in in kind of building a better product or both. How how do you balance the necessity of what uh, some of these regulations? Uh, that may be uh, placed on us versus what's just right for getting the best product out the door. Mike, well, Bill, I'll, I'll chime in, and then John, you can you can follow on. Um, first of all, let me just take a, a half a step back for a moment and just really echo what John. One of the things that John just mentioned a moment ago, and that is that design controls, in particular, or regulation in general, should not, absolutely not, hamper progress. And unfortunately, this is sort of contrarian to many people's view today um, because they look at it as the more regulation or the earlier design controls um, are required to kick in, the more difficult it's going to be, the longer it's going to take to, to develop a device, the more expensive it's going to be, the higher the regulatory burden. And although I understand why a lot of people think that way, it does not have to be that way. This goes back to what I alluded to um, in my first comment, and that is design controls, in my mind, are really nothing more than prudent engineering. You know, perhaps I'm dating myself here, but just for the benefit of your audience, I started out in this business as an R&D engineer in the early 1990s, <clears throat> long before there was any design controls in place. 
And somehow, I don't know how this happened, but somehow we were able to get reasonably decent medical devices onto the market, even though we didn't have these thousands and thousands of pages of regulation. Today, we have all of this additional regulation, but the question is, are our products, are our devices really any better? I'll leave that as a rhetorical question, but it's an interesting question to, to ask. So bottom line, the best advice that I can give to the folks that are listening to this uh, podcast is don't focus so much on the design controls from a regulatory sense. In other words, yes, I understand it's important to follow the regulation. It's important to make sure that we have the right documentation. It's important to make sure that uh, you know we have traceability and all these different things. But more importantly, ask yourself as a prudent engineer, what makes sense? What are the things that I should be doing? And then consult the regulation and use the regulation as a backup, as a sanity check to make sure that you haven't forgotten anything. Uh, very, very, uh, very good points there, Mike. John, any uh, lasting thoughts here on this this topic before we shift gears a little? Yeah, I mean, I, I, prudent engineering, Mike's Mike's spot on. I mean, and I want to emphasize, you know, again, I, I mentioned the fear, and I think there's there's this fear about regulation. There's this fear when when engineers hear this term design control that suddenly that it's some sort of complicated, convoluted. Um, Thing that that uh, you know I struggle to understand, and I'm just going to say keep it simple, and keeping it simple and, and design control should should just flow with how you're doing your prudent engineering. It should flow with with you know the progression of an idea <coughs> through the definition of requirements to testing whether or not that product meets those requirements, testing whether or not the product meets those user needs. And as long as you keep that continuum in mind, design control should should be something that, that just happens uh, as part of uh, being a prudent engineer. Some, you know, some some engineers are believed to stay in that, you know, along the theme here, to stay in, in research for as long as possible for the belief they can somewhat fly under the radar, I guess, before crossing over into, into development. John, I gather you have some strong opinions around what many refer to as making the transition from R to D. Just share a little bit about kind of what the industry is talking about here and, and why it really matters? Sure. And so there's this, this uh, long-standing belief that, uh, that uh, if I'm in research in, with my medical device product development effort, as long as I can say that I'm in a research mode, that somehow or another the, what I'm doing is outside the purview of FDA or other uh, regulatory bodies. And if if I'm inclined to believe that, then I choose I may choose to stay in research for as long as possible. And it's interesting to see you know some companies will will be very adamant that you know no this project is research and it stays in research until you know we have a, a proven concept and a proven model and and you know we've done you know an, an animal study and after we've done that then we kick over into development and then. You know, kind of gets back to our, our earlier discussion about when design controls begin. Once I cross from research into development, then my design controls begin. And I, I you know, I, I think it's interesting. You know, is that really a, a pragmatic or practical approach to this topic? Does it really matter if I'm in research versus development? Mike, I'm sure you've got kind of a uh, maybe a similar, slightly different twist. What uh, what thoughts you have? 
Well, thanks, Bill. I'll just pick up on John's very last comment, and and I think it was uh, very apropos, and that is, does it really matter if we say that we're in research or development? Um, you know, we could easily turn this discussion into a philosophical discussion of, of what the difference is between research and development. I don't want to do that. But more importantly, um, you know, we should remember what Shakespeare said a very long time ago, and that is a rose by any other name still, still smells as sweet. So in a big-picture perspective, I really don't care, quite frankly, if we call it research or if we call it development. What's much more important to me is that we're doing the things that we're supposed to be doing, and hopefully the regulation will be echoing that. And even if you are working in early research, and let's be honest, unlike, for example, the pharma or the biotech industries, most medical device companies don't do very much R. They do a tremendous amount of D, but they don't do very much R. But even if you are working on the R side of research and development, you should, if for, if for no other reason, be cognizant of design controls because at some point, sooner or later, you or somebody in your organization is going to have to transition from research to development, um, which is definitely when design controls kick in, assuming that you're working on a class two or a class three medical device. And uh, it's going to make that transition a lot easier to make um, if you've thought about, <clears throat> pardon me, some of those sort of basic design control 101 issues, even though that technically, according to the regulation, they might not be applicable uh, for for you in research. And this is why, you know, the, the software tools that, that you folks are developing, I think, really make it um, beneficial for, for customers, for companies to be thinking about those things, even in advance of maybe when they're required to do so. Well, you, you both both brought up the word transition, and I, I uh, was actually just speaking to a, an early-stage med device firm this week, and the topic surfaced of kind of how do you get a product from idea stage to something of significant value that a, you know, a bigger player would want to uh, scoop up, so to speak. So along this thread, uh, Mike, how do you, how do you um, believe larger companies view a potential acquisition when there's little to no design control documentation? Well, that's a great question, Bill, and as a part-time entrepreneur myself, someone who's involved in starting up several medical device companies, um, believe me, I, to, to, to quote a famous politician, I feel the pain of a lot of my fellow entrepreneurial colleagues because um, when you're starting from nothing and you're building a prototype in your garage or your basement, um, you're trying to do everything sort of quick and dirty, and the last thing you want to be doing is spending a lot of time or money on um, regulatory minutia, shall we say. Nonetheless, in the context of design controls, I think it's important for even early entrepreneurs to understand that they can greatly maximize the attractability, if you will, of their little new startup to uh, a potential acquisition, a large medical device company, for example, by at the very least having the beginnings of a design control system in place or um, at least having the, uh, the pieces of the puzzle in there so that when the larger company acquires them or swallows them up, once again, it's going to make it that much easier for, uh, for them to manage that transition. Um, so, so my best advice for the entrepreneurs in this audience is, believe me, I understand 
you probably don't think this is very necessary. You probably don't think this is, you know, a real good use of your time or your resources. But just remember two things. First of all, it will help you to be to be more attractive to a potential acquisition target. So that's sort of the pragmatic response. Um, perhaps even equally, if not more important, and that is from a philosophical perspective, going back to what we talked about before, you know, design controls are really nothing more than what I call prudent engineering, what some of us are, what we're all supposed to learn in engineering school, although I'm not sure if they teach that anymore, um, doing the things that uh, we really should do anyway. So those are my two best pieces of advice I can share for the entrepreneurs in the audience. John, obviously you've got a pretty good breadth of uh, client experience directly in, in the, the med device world. How, uh, have you, how have you seen either document controls uh, being well, you know, well documented or simply uh, void play out in, uh, in, in kind of the life cycle of some of these small early stage companies? Yeah, it's a, a great uh, a great question to consider, and, and you know, I'm, I'm you know, kind of playing a little bit on on what Mike has, has said, but you know, I'm going to come at it from a little bit of a different angle. Um, over the you know the past well, that, several yeah, and that's that, having that little different angle, John, is quite fine. And in fact, one of the reasons okay. why I was anxious to get you guys together here on today's cast is I recall a little bit of jousting back and forth over a a couple of blog post comments, and I, I, it's great to hear, you know, both the similar as well as a little bit of the contrasting views that you guys have. Sure. No, I'm, Mike and I, uh, uh, we we uh, enjoy the kind of the jousting from time to time. It, it makes each of us a little bit sharper. Um, um, my uh, my different take on this, uh, you know, working, having worked with a number of um, early stage startup med device companies over the past eight, nine years or so, um, you know, the, the early stage company, the startup, they're they're often you know driven behind funding of course and they need to get some sort of funding to get their product to to that next major milestone and and there was this trend that that seemed to emerge you know ten years or so ago uh, certainly from driven from the investment community I think that a major funding milestone was this thing called a five ten k submission um, granted that's you know for class two products but Startups in this space were were just they they glammed on to that because you know getting a five ten k submission meant that there was a significant milestone that was directly attributed to their ability to get more funding and and I think that that you know that was one piece that that really took hold in the industry and another piece was this emphasis on intellectual property and you uh, getting patents and, and things of that nature. And I think that while you know uh, regulatory submission and clearance are certainly important, significant milestones for for any endeavor, especially for a medical device startup, and the same could be said about patents. I think there was so much emphasis that was placed on on those two key pieces of the puzzle that design controls were were abandoned. And and I um, actually had a conversation with a with a startup yesterday. And they were successful. They got a 510K submission, and they they've got they received their clearance, and they have no uh, design history file, no design controls to speak of. They have done nothing on their their quality system, and now they you know they're interested in in you know being an acquisition target, and suddenly they had one of those those moments where they realized uh, that they have a ton of work to do that. 
because they ignored design controls, because they ignored building a quality system, that they're not as attractive to a potential shooter. So, you know, while that 510K is important, design controls, uh, in my opinion, are just as important. No, absolutely, and, you know, simply put, I think we've all in our professional and most likely our, our uh, personal lives as well have had you know, plenty of those oh-crap moments where we kind of reflect back. We're going to wrap up today's podcast with sharing some insight on, on really how to manage up-classification situations. So, for example, what we're talking about is a Class 1 shifting to a Class 2 or Class 2 making a bump to Class 3 and what's necessary in addressing design controls. I think some say it's really all about what you I guess what you claim your device does, others stress the importance of how additional bells and whistles may be added to your product design, uh, change indications for use, and potentially how the FDA might do classification. Mike, what are your thoughts on this subject? So, Bill, it's a very good question. Um, And since I spend a fair amount of my time uh, working as a regulatory consultant for a wide variety of medical device companies, I see it happen frequently where, as you described, the classification of a device will change. Sometimes uh, it will be down-classified. Other times it will be up-classified. Sometimes the classification uh, change is because of nothing that the company did. In other words, occasionally FDA will go back and reclassify devices prophylactically based on uh, our experience with the device over a period of time. Other times the classification might change because, for example, we changed the labeling. We go after a indication for the same device, but it has a higher risk or we add an additional bell or feature that uh, justifies the higher classification. So bottom line, um, because lower class products, most class one devices are exempt from design controls in the regulatory sense, I see a lot of companies that say, well, we're working on a class one device, therefore we don't have to worry about design controls. And if they find themselves in one of the scenarios that I just described, now they might be working uh, on the same or similar device that's now class two, and all of a sudden they're in the wonderful world of design controls. So once again, I go back to what I talked about before. Whether technically you are uh, responsible for following the design controls or not really shouldn't matter. It shouldn't be the most important thing that we think about. What should matter is that we have the systems in place that John was describing earlier and that the software, the product that, that you guys have, it helps people to to uh, to develop and to maintain. We have all of those systems in place, including, you know, uh, quality and so on and so on, so that if we're in one of those situations, um, it makes that transition much easier. And one last thing that I'll mention is I find a lot of the companies that I work with, they get so focused on bringing their current device onto the market that they really don't even think about the um, challenges for line extensions or new products that might that might arise, um, you know, following that market. So as Stephen Covey used to say, begin with the end in mind. So yes, I certainly understand the pragmatic importance of putting most of our eggs in the current basket, that is, focusing most of our attention on the device that we're trying to get onto the market right now. 
but we should always have at least one eye to the future and be thinking about, you know, what could change or what uh, bells and whistles and features might we add or what um, indication might we go after in the future that might kick us from the world where we don't have to worry about design controls very much to the world that we do. John, Mike brought up uh, you know interesting theme around uh, briefly on on down classifications, which is something I, I really haven't thought about. Obviously, in an ideal world, keeping things as as simple as possible would be you know would be probably preferred on the on the med device uh, company side. What what uh, one single thought would you really want to hang your hat on when we're when we're talking about either up or down classifications that you'd want to leave the audience with? Yeah, one thought. Um, boy, that's a Putting me on the spot, though. Um, okay, that's, so, that's so what it's all about, about right? People want to be. <laughs> all right, so so one thought: um, it, your class doesn't matter. Um, you have to look at design control. It, it's really a foundation. And and I go back to to early on in my career, sitting you know in an audit uh, and going through. And it was an ISO audit in this case, and we were going through design control, design history file. With uh, with the auditor, and the auditor asked me a question, and I'm like, "Yeah, we did that," and and the auditor was like, "Show me," and so basically, don't tell me, show me, and design controls is is really what that's all about. I mean, Mike referenced a couple times today, prudent engineering, and if you're a prudent engineer, then design controls should be part and parcel with with how you do your job. It's the proof. It's the evidence that your product does what you say it's going to do, and that should be irrespective of whether your product is class one, class two, class three, whether it's U.S., whether it's Europe, whether it's Canada. It, it really doesn't matter. Design control is a universal practice that allows you to prove that your product is safe and effective. And at the end of the day, that's the, the game we're all in here trying to to make sure that we're bringing, bringing products to market uh, as fast, as safe, and uh, ultimately with the best patient outcomes. With that, Mike and John, thanks so much for spending time with us. Your insight obviously is uh, is interesting and definitely appreciated. Those of you listening in, thanks for your continued feedback and shared enthusiasm. If you'd like to stay in touch with Mike, you can check out more of what he has to say on his guest column at Medical Device Online Magazine or connect with him on LinkedIn. You can check out more of John's writing at blog.greenlight.guru or ping John on LinkedIn. Stay true to your roots. Till next time, let's all work together towards improving the quality of life on Earth and who knows, maybe even beyond. (laughs) 